Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians and chapter 3. We uh, began our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians in January 2015. <laughs> so we're, uh, we're entering our fourth year. Uh, now, of course, we haven't been in the book every Wednesday night. Uh, Pastor Brendan and Brother Steve have taught us. I've brought some other one-off type studies and we've taken weeks off over the holidays. But even so, it's been a, a long study. You'd have to uh, agree with me. <coughs> Now, my goal is to finish the book this year. Now, I probably said that this time last year, but I really do think it's going to happen this year. Uh, Pastor Brendan reminded me that I told him that I wanted to finish our study before Elizabeth has her first birthday. So I've got until the 18th of September. That's the, that's the deadline. Now, if you remember, our last few lessons were on what we call the household code. At the end of chapter 3, Paul specifically addresses the members of the home and gives them plain instructions on how they are to think and behave as those who are in the Lord. Uh, The new man, our new life in Christ, is to be lived out in the home, in the way that we relate to one another in that setting. So far we've considered what the Apostle says to wives in verse 18, to husbands in verse 19, to children in verse 20, and to parents in verse 21. This evening we come to the commands given to servants in verses 22 through 25. That Paul addresses servants might strike us as a a bit unusual. We don't normally think of a household including servants. As far as I know, none of us have servants who were who were part of our household uh, but it was the norm in the roman empire in the first century uh, if you were well off you had servants who were part of your household or if you were poor you were a servant uh, you were part of someone else's household in that capacity actually as we'll see paul was talking about slaves and there were millions of them in the roman empire And it seems as though they made up a significant portion of the early church. It was one of the unique features of the early church, and it was very noticeable that slaves and masters came together in one body as equals. It was noticeable that they they loved each other and cared for each other and enjoyed fellowship together. So this is what we're considering in our lesson tonight, the commands given to servants. And I've called this study, The New Man at Work. Let's read the text, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help as we look into his word. Please follow along as I read aloud from Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things... For this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, 
and there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for plainly revealing yourself and your will to us. We ask now that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand the text of Scripture before us. I pray that he would impress its truth upon our heart. I pray that we would find instruction and encouragement in these things we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, before we get into the passage, I want to briefly address a question of context, and that is, you know, who is Paul talking to? Uh, when he says servants, who, who is he referring to? Well, as I've already intimated, Paul was referring to slaves. Uh, the Greek word is douloi, the plural of doulos, and a word you've probably heard if you've been in church for a while. Now, a slave was not an employee and I think we know that a slave wasn't paid for their services rather a slave was owned a slave was property and all a slave owner had to do was provide the the basic necessities of life to his slaves if he wanted them to be healthy enough to to work as 21st century readers and as Christians we are profoundly uncomfortable with the concept of slavery, and rightly so. The New Testament never endorses slavery. It simply acknowledges its existence. It speaks as though slavery was a social norm, which it was. And it gives instructions for Christians who were at either end of that relationship, either a slave or a master. But that said, I would also argue that in the New Testament, the seeds were planted that led to the demise of slavery as a morally and socially acceptable form of human relationship. Furthermore, the kind of slavery that we normally think of, we normally think of the transatlantic slave trade where people were taken from Africa to North America and to Great Britain, That form of slavery is explicitly condemned in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. It's not by accident that many of the leading campaigners for the abolition of slavery were committed evangelical Christians. People like John Newton, William Wilberforce and Harriet Beecher Stowe. In our introduction to the Household Code, I talked at length about slavery in the Bible, and so I'm not going to revisit the subject this evening. You can go back and listen to that study if you like. It's available on our website. It was the lesson we had on the 30th of August last year. I just want to make two comments now before we uh, dive into our text. First of all, we have to recognise the implication of Paul even talking to this class of people. This by itself was revolutionary. Uh, this alone elevated these people. It afforded them dignity and respect that most didn't give to them. Now listen to what Douglas Moo says in his commentary. I've put the quote there in your notes. It is significant that Paul chooses to address slaves at all implying not only that they assembled with the other Christians of the Colossian church to hear the letter being read but that they are responsible people who need to choose a certain kind of behaviour. Paul treats 
slaves as equals in terms of their humanity. They, they are as responsible as anyone else for the decisions they make. And he treats them as equals in terms of their Christianity. They were part of the church. They gathered to receive God's word and to enjoy fellowship like everyone else. They needed to put on the virtues of the new man and to put off the sins of the old. They had to live out their new life in Christ in the domestic setting in which they lived, just as every believer is called to. So that's the first thing to note here by way of introduction and context. In addressing slaves, Paul elevates them. He treats them as human beings and as equal participants in the Christian life and fellowship. The second thing to note is the matter of application or relevance. I don't think we're taking this text out of context if we apply it to our present social and economic situation. Now, we don't have masters and slaves in a 21st century Australia. Praise God for that. Rather, we have employers and employees. It's a different arrangement based on a different legal foundation. But that doesn't make this passage irrelevant. It's perfectly acceptable to take the principles from this particular set of circumstances that Paul is addressing and bring them over into our own. The context is the area of work. And unless we're retired or unwell or a child, we all work. We're either an employee or an employer. And so this text is for us. And it's an important text because we spend such a large part of our lives working. If we talk about work in terms of paid employment, the average male will spend approximately 30% of his life working. And if we broaden our definition out to include non-paid work, that figure would be much higher for both men and women. So thankfully the Lord hasn't left us to make our own way in this area of life. He's given us clear direction. As you can see in the notes, I'm going to address these words to servants under four headings. We're only going to cover the first two this evening. We'll consider the second two next Wednesday, God willing. As the new man goes to work, we see, number one, a new way of working in verse 22. A new way of thinking in verse 23, a new motivation in verse 24, and an old reminder in verse 25. A new way of working, a new way of thinking, a new motivation, and an old reminder. And so first of all, a new way of working. Verse 22 says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. The expression according to the flesh is a reference to earthly masters. Paul has talked an awful lot in this letter about our heavenly master, about the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he wants to be very clear about who he's referring to. Now for us, this is our boss, our manager, our supervisor, our employer 
Now the command is clear and it's comprehensive. Obey in all things your masters. Now God has vested authority in employers, just as he has in parents and magistrates and elders. Every lawful instruction we are given at work is to be obeyed. The only exception, which we've talked about before, is if we're ordered to do something contrary to God's law. That's the only time we can say no. We we have to obey a higher authority. This can be pretty hard sometimes, can't it? (laughs) Especially if you have a boss who's not very personable or considerate or who's just not very competent. It's humbling to follow orders from someone of poor character. But we must. The scripture is clear. Not just here, but in Ephesians chapter 6 and in 1 Peter chapter 2. In fact, listen to what Peter says. He, he actually addresses the situation where a Christian has a bad boss. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. That is, be obedient and respectful, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. And the word means crooked or perverse. Well, this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now even if he's an awful boss who treats you badly, obey him or her. Be respectful. Be patient, keep on doing well, keep on being a good worker, for that's pleasing to the Lord. And it's following in the footsteps of Jesus, as Peter goes on to talk about in that chapter. We are to obey our employer in all things. But this is not the new part of this command. This is the norm. This is mandatory for every person, whether they're a Christian or not. Following lawful directions in the workplace is a universal expectation. But what's different for the Christian is what comes next in the verse. You see, the new man doesn't just obey, he obeys in a particular way, in a way that embraces the inward as well as the outward. Paul goes on to say, not with eye service as men pleasers. And the King James translators have given us a very literal translation of this first Greek word. I've put it in the notes. It's the word for I, ophthalmos, and one of the words for service, dulia. Unsurprisingly, this is service that has to do with the eye. <laughs> it refers to the servant who works hard only when the master's eye is on him or her. And we know about this, don't we? Especially if you're a parent, you know about this. Now, when you're watching, the kids seem to work that little bit harder. A bit more effort goes into cleaning the room. You know, instead of playing with the toys, they actually pack them away. I like what Calvin says about this in his commentary. I think he sums it up very well. This is mentioned because almost all servants are addicted to flattery. But as soon as their master's back is turned, indulge freely in contempt or perhaps in ridicule. 
Paul therefore enjoins godly persons to keep at the greatest distance from such deceitful pretenses. And when the boss is around, it's yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, it's head down, tail up, work, work, work. But when the boss is out of the room or away for the day, the the feet go up on the desk or these days the iPhone comes out or the the chatting about the weekend starts or the web browser gets opened up on the computer and Facebook gets checked. I mean, this is normal workplace behaviour, isn't it? Especially in an Australian workplace. This, this eye service, it's normal. But the Christian doesn't operate like this. A Christian works diligently whether the boss is watching or not. And sometimes that really annoys their colleagues. Why are you working so hard? The boss isn't here today. You're going to make us all look bad. The Christian isn't about eye service in the workplace, nor is he or she a man pleaser. That's the second word here. It means to court the favour of man. It's, it's working diligently only to be seen by the boss. It's appearing to care about what you're doing when you really don't. You're, you're only doing things to get noticed by the boss, to get in his good books, to, to get ahead in the organisation. It's pretense. It's hypocrisy. It's having an ulterior motive. And again, this is the norm in many workplaces, isn't it? Uh, It's all about advancing one's personal standing with the boss. Now, the new man doesn't take this approach. Rather, he works in singleness of heart, fearing God. The word translated singleness literally means without folds. In Romans chapter 12, verse 8, it's translated simplicity. Now, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, that is, without an ulterior motive. Now, the reference is to sincerity or wholeheartedness. There is no pretending, no game playing, no hypocrisy. Rather, there is sincere, wholehearted effort to fulfill the Master's commands. The Christian's manager has no reason to think, I wonder if this is all an act. I wonder if they're they're just trying to impress me to get something. I, I wonder if this is what they're really like. No, no, what the manager sees is the real deal. A hard-working, committed, sincere, respectful employee who genuinely cares about his work, his colleagues and the organisation. Or at least that's what the manager should see. Because we're the people in this world who fear God. Did you notice the last part? In singleness of heart, fearing God. Working this way is the outflow. It's the demonstration of our reverence for God. God's opinion of our attitude and our effort matters most and That's why there is singleness of heart, sincerity, wholeheartedness. Why did Joseph, though a slave, work so diligently for Potiphar? Why did he refuse the advances of Potiphar's wife, who, by the way, was probably not an unattractive, unpleasant woman? Let's not pretend that Joseph wasn't tempted. Why did he resist? Why did he have such a spirit of excellence? 
because he feared the Lord. And we too will have that spirit of excellence in the workplace if we truly fear the Lord. The new man has a new and distinctly different way of working to the old. Christians are not lazy, half-hearted, hypocritical or sycophantic. And this comes about because a Christian has a new way of thinking. And this is our second heading. We see this in verse 23. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. And then notice the end of verse 24. For ye serve the Lord Christ. The word heartily is a translation of two Greek words, ek sukes, literally out of the soul, or we might say from the heart. With a personal interest is how one scholar puts it, and I quite like that. This again reinforces the idea of sincerity and of genuine effort. Now we are commanded to really care about what we do at work and we we are to work as if we're doing it for the Lord and not just for our earthly boss because in fact we are working for the Lord. We might sum it up this way. I've put the sentence in your notes. There is sincere personal interest and care in our work. Because we recognise that ultimately it is service to the Lord. We serve the Lord Christ. This is the key. The biblical way of thinking about work. It's more than just for the company or work for the institution or work for our boss or work for our clients or work to put food on the table and pay the bills. It's work for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, work has a a transcendent quality, and it always has. Work is sacred. Work is divine service. When we grasp this, when our mind is renewed along these lines, it gives our work meaning and value. I'm not just teaching this bunch of ratty kids. I'm not just sweeping the floor. I'm not just doing this spreadsheet. I'm not just washing these dishes and hanging out these clothes. I'm actually serving Christ. I'm doing God's work. This recognition affects our attitude and our commitment. We work with that wholeheartedness that Paul commands. Not with eye service. Not as man pleases. Work is not something that came about as a consequence of the fall. We've got to get that straight. It's not the case that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and now we have to work. No. It was the nature of work that changed as a consequence of the fall and the curse, but not God's intent that we should work. There was work before the fall. It's one of the creation ordinances. And as such, it has always been service to the Creator. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, which I'll, I'll read to you now. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. 
Adam's life was not one of pure leisure and recreation. He didn't spend all day looking into Eve's eyes and composing love poetry. He he had a job, a task to fulfill, something that gave him purpose. He had to look after the garden. In this way, he was fulfilling the mandate that God gave to mankind in Genesis 1 to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it. In dressing and keeping the garden, Adam was serving his creator. I like to think of it this way. This is God's world. It all belongs to him. Psalm 24 verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. And God gave Adam and his descendants the responsibility of looking after what belongs to him. The work is doing just this. It's exercising stewardship of God's creation. Whether that be changing tyres or changing nappies or fixing cars or doing brain surgery. It's taking care of what belongs to God. It's serving the Creator, the Lord Christ, just as Paul says here in Colossians chapter 3. You see, what Paul is doing in this text is giving to work its original dignity and significance. And we can understand how meaningful this would have been to slaves. We can imagine how uplifting it must have been for them to realise that they were actually serving the Lord. Their their labour had value in the eyes of their heavenly master. And this should encourage us as well. No matter how boring or dispiriting our job is, it's work for the Lord. It's fulfilling his purposes in this world. This is a new way of thinking about work. Unsaved people don't usually think this way about their job. They don't see the spiritual reality. But in truth, it's actually not new at all. This is an example of the gospel restoring to man what was lost in Eden. Restoring to man the proper understanding of his purpose and a proper understanding of what he spends his life doing. Martin Luther is often credited with bringing this doctrine back into the life of the church. Now, when he was born, there was a a great divide in people's minds between the secular and the sacred. And the accepted wisdom was that it was only the clergy who did God's work. Priests and bishops, cardinals and popes, they performed spiritual service. The average layperson didn't. But Luther recognised what the New Testament teaches about the priesthood of all believers. We all offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And he understood that God does his work in the world through people of all classes and conditions. He is reported to have said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbour does. And that's true. I want to finish with another quote from Luther. He paints a simple picture that sums all of this up for us. He wrote, God himself will milk the cows through him whose vocation that is. He who engages in the lowliness of his work performs God's work, be he lad or king. The cows belong to God. 
He created them and uh, he cares for cows. He knows they need to be milked. And little children belong to God. He created them too and he cares for them and he knows they need that cow's milk. And so the one who milks the cow cares for God's creation, for the cow and for the little child. He does God's work. He serves the Lord Christ. And may we as God's people think this way as we go into our homes and into our workplaces and do what we have to do. Amen.